This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. The Rohingya population from Myanmar's Rakhine State are a community almost living entirely in exile, whether in refugee camps in Bangladesh or working on boats throughout the Indian Ocean. The Butupalong refugee camp in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh, is now the world's largest. But the Rohingya's struggles began long before the crisis intensified in 2012 or 2017, as Odin Kamil Ahmed's book, I Feel No Peace, Rohingya Fleeing Over Seas and Rivers. Kamil talks to Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh and beyond to understand how this community has tried to survive years of neglect and at times hostility from the government's institutions meant to look after them. Kamil Ahmed is a journalist at The Guardian covering international development who previously lived in and reported from Jerusalem, Bangladesh, and Turkey. Today, Kamil and I talk about the Rohingya population, their lives in the refugee camps, and their attempts to make a life for themselves. So, Kamil, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You know, I think it perhaps it's best to start with the roots of where the the roots of the Rohingya refugee crisis. Um, you know, I think there's the Rohingya, at least according to most histories, have been in that region for a very long time. Um, but I guess how how long has this community been living in Rakhine State, and kind of where do the roots of this crisis come from? I think this. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think this question is one that comes up a lot, and the issue at the heart of the question is this idea of, well, do they belong there? And I think it's a bit misleading, because they live in an area where borders have changed, rulers have changed many times um, between various kingdoms, Rakhine kingdoms, the Burmese kingdom, the British Empire. And so it's actually quite a difficult question to answer how long have they been there or have they always have they always been there? Um I think the best way to kind of to describe the situation is that the border between Northern Rakhine State, Romans Rohingya and Bangladesh is, for the most part, a river which is not particularly wide. I think it's quite it. It's unrealistic to believe that people never cross that river until a certain point in time, and that all the Rohingya arrived there. Which is, of course, which is something that has been brought up in kind of nationalist or kind of xenophobic discourse in Myanmar. This idea that the Rohingya are Bengalis who arrived at a certain time, and they have various. There are various theories for that. Some that it was in the twentieth century, others that it was under the British as kind of seasonal workers, 
who, who came and never left. But there is a much longer history of interaction between Rakhine State and the Bengal prior to the British and prior to the Burmese Kingdom taking over Rakhine. Rakhine, or as usually in specific with Arakan, mm-hmm. was a historical kingdom with quite a significant presence with a lot of interaction with uh, the kingdoms on either side of it. Um, they they at some point controlled parts of Bengal, what is now Bengal, like they were quite close to Chittagong um, in Bangladesh now, which is now Bangladesh's kind of second biggest city. So, and on the other hand, Bengal sultans helped, were sometimes involved in Rakhine's internal politics. And we had Bengali and other people in Rakhine courts. You had you had this period where Rakhine kind of pirates were enslaving Bengalis and selling them in the markets in Rakhine. So th- there's been a long, long history of interaction between Rakhine State and Bengal and elsewhere. And so I think the idea that the Rohingya kind of just arrived there and are one distinct kind of unlike an ethnicity that were kind of transplanted there is, is a bit of a is not really accurate and quite hard to believe you you only really believe it if you have a view of history which is an old nations where basically current borders were always there um, and people were inflexible into the mood which is really not true or anywhere right and i think uh, you know one one thing that kind of struck me on on reading your book um you know i think i think most people when they think of the rohingya crisis they think about um kind of when the crisis intensified in 2012 and i think particularly after 2016 2017 um that's when it was in the news that was when uh the court case was being fought um, at the Hague, uh, but your book notes that 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 this crisis has been happening for for decades. I wonder if you might kind of kind of talk about um, some of the earlier refugee crises that happened um, with the Rohingya. Yeah, in some ways, you can say it starts straight after Burmese independence from the British. Um, you can find in the 1940s and 50s articles from the international media that mention Muslims from Western Myanmar fleeing to the border of East Pakistan as Bangladesh was done at that time before it's own independence. Um, but it's really from the 1960s, 70s that conditions really start to deteriorate and um mostly under general Ne Win, who was kind of the military ruler who was kind of enforcing these ideas of level one nation um and the Rohingya didn't fit into the idea of the nation and while things were difficult for them in the decades before depending on who you were and where you were it, it was it wasn't so bad. Like a lot of people were able to, to some extent, live like other citizens of, of Burma. Um, 
But from the 70s, it, it gets really much worse. And in 1978, is the first major exodus of Rohingya. Um, there was a military operation which was kind of described as a a population counting exercise, like a census, but it was kind of Rohingya were forced to try and prove that they belonged. And they were in a very kind of rural, neglected part of the country, very remote. Um, and there was not much interest in them. So they didn't, they were kind of forgotten by the government. Uh, I, there was a, there was a woman I spoke to who remembers a massive cyclone in probably sometime in the seventies, early seventies, and just no one ever came to help. Like their houses were completely flooded and destroyed and they just had to sit in the forests and hide um, until it kind of, the sports receded, they had to find food. Somehow they, they found it from a kind of a boat that had um, crashed and had some stores in it. No one came. And that was that was what Rakhine State or Northern Rakhine State was like. Um, and so in a place like that, they didn't have paperwork. And so when the government comes and tries to ask you to prove that you belong, people got scared. And there was violence as well. It was kind of like a very heavy kind of military surge into Rakhine State to try and pick up all the Rohingya and they were arrested. Some people were killed um, and there was just a lot of violence against them and it created a massive amount of fear that this was them being kicked out. And so a lot of Rohingya ran and they fled to Bangladesh and that's where they, they stayed for about a year. Um, some people managed to stay longer, but it, um, that was kind of the first time there were big refugee camps in Bangladesh. Um, and Bangladesh accepted them for a while, but then made them repat repatriated them. Um, and so when they return, it's not the end of it. Even though Myanmar accepts them, it takes them back. It this is really where kind of the process of excluding them begins. And I think like, if we talk about genocide, it, this is really a big part of it. it. Genocide is not just the massacres that happened in 2017. It's, it's a whole process of excluding them, of stripping away their identity, of kind of eliminating their, their presence. And so in 82, they stripped citizenship. And that's really, I think, that's the point everyone kind of remembers. It's it's really significant. And they they haven't been they have already gone through a process of being stripped stripped away of their rights. And as nineteen seventy eight showed of of being kind of treated as an other and being told they don't belong, but 82 shows that even those who did have paperwork do not belong. Even those who do have paperwork who are kind of meticulous. I met a man who who really like his family had kept, they were quite well educated. They kept really meticulous records. They made sure they always had their birth certificates. They, they always had a way to prove 
who they were and where they were born and where they came from, what they did. And in 78, that meant they, they didn't have to go anywhere because they had those records. But by 82, despite all of that, it had gone. They were no longer considered citizens of Burma. And so that begins the process, really, of being able to take away everything, completely treat them as as another people, as people who don't belong, who have no rights. So then they can't travel, they can't going to hospitals, going to schools, all of these things become more difficult. Um, they're, they're not the only people, but there is a particularly bad problem in Rakhine State of Rohingya being taken for forced labor by by the military. And a lot of people die like this. And also while they're away, a lot of violence happens in their villages. There's abuse of women. And so by the ni- 1990s, early 1990s, this is really bad. And that starts the second wave of of kind of Rohingya fleeing to to Bangladesh, and it's I think about two hundred fifty thousand in around nineteen ninety, nineteen ninety one who uh, who go to Bangladesh, and this is quite a significant point in the kind of in the history, especially in this book. I'm talking about the Rohingya as refugees. It's about ha- how they live and what happens to them hmm. as refugees. And nineteenth and nineteen nineties is important because. Refugee camps, as we know it now, are considered the world's largest, and but it sometimes they are sometimes treated as as if they only existed when they became the world's largest, and that's not true. They've existed mm-hmm. since the nineteen nineties because some of those two hundred fifty thousand never returned. Mm. Um, some of them were sent back. Um, some of them willingly. Many of them also by force or if not by force by very they can said was kind of manufactured by coercion and by worse very difficult conditions that were placed in them by by the government of Bangladesh once it didn't kind of once had a certain amount of time had passed and it didn't want to to keep them so yeah you have the 1990s and the refugee camps there but and in the meantime things are just getting continuing to get worse in in Myanmar, um, rights being stripped away, and I think the next big turning point is 2012, when there's when there are intercommunal riots. At this time, you also have like a really big. There's, there's a certain, and there's a certain element of like far right Buddhism, which is very violent and is constantly agitating against the Rohingya. Uses this idea of like Muslims that invade from the West and take over Buddhist lands, um, and that really helps i think also you're getting into the internet era and that really helps to completely kind of other the rohingya and by this point there's a really a lot of violent rhetoric against them genocidal rhetoric against them and in 2012 they are kind of in the capital rakhine state sitzway they are basically kicked out of their home put into idp camps um and they can't move beyond their villages or wherever they are, they're completely confined. You you see, you see stories of like, you see the Myanmar military saying, "Oh, we've arrested a Rohingya for illegally bike shopping outside of the designated area." Um, that that's the situation. They're completely confined to where to like villages and IDP camps, and that just along with like the genocide red, rhetoric that's going on, it builds and builds to what happened in 2017, which is the biggest of the massacres in their face. Yeah. 
so there was there was a lot there was a lot in that answer, but I particularly want to drill down on um, something you mentioned about uh, refugees being repatriated, often with um, often coerced, often with consent that was manufactured. You know, it it struck me that Bangladesh is spending a lot of time trying to get rid of the Rohingya, basically to 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 find ways to to uh, in some ways quite openly, I think, usher them out, uh, usher them back to to Myanmar, um, and we'll do things like like cut food aid. We'll put a lot of pressure on on the camps. Um, I mean, does Bangladesh's attitude towards this refugee crisis change, or have they always been very, um, I guess, at best ambivalent, at worst, openly hostile to to this refugee community? I think the thing for Bangladesh is that, especially in seventy eight and ninety one, it's quite a new country. It's quite poor, and so there is a quite significant burden placed on it by the kind of presence of the Rohingya, um, and so that's possibly part of the thinking. They they didn't want to be kind of looking after them for a really long time, and but. The methods the governments use are coercive and yeah, it involves quite significantly cutting food rations in the in seventy eight, um, to the point that there's an estimate that around ten thousand people died from kind of lack of food. Uh in nineteen ninety one a remove food rations from some people who refuse to go. They they make life very difficult, not allowed to have, have education, not allowed to freely move, um, not allowed to kind of politically organize. Um, and then sometimes actually just forcing people to agree to go back. Um, and I think they kind of, I think it almost became a blueprint for how to get them to go back. Um, once they'd taken them in, allowed situation to calm in Myanmar to a certain extent, they would start putting in these very restrictive practices. These, these policies that say you don't belong here, and so you can't live like a normal Bangladeshi in the area, which is another part of what they've always said is that they don't want the Rohingya to to kind of assimilate and behave like pretend that they're Bangladeshis and just be, become part of the population. Um, I think one of part of that is because that area of the country is also quite very poor and it would be possible they the, the Rohingya that language is quite similar to the dialect that is spoken. Not exactly the same, but it's quite similar to the dialect spoken in that part of Bangladesh. Um and I think you do see some elements of this being repeated now. Um it's not exactly the same. Bangladesh has not forced anyone back. Um, even though there's talks now again about repatriation and a delegation from Myanmar came and there's a kind of 
agreement for a trial repatriation. Um, Bangladesh has not forced anyone back. Is twice put buses in the camps and said if anyone wants to go back, we'll take them back. But no one, no one, I think not a single person got on them. Um, so it hasn't used the force. It hasn't really used food reductions in the same way. Um, there are food reductions at the moment, but I, as far as we know, this shop, that was put in the food ration cuts were put in place by the WFP because they said it's not getting enough money from international donors. Um, but what it has done is stopped Rohingya from working, even in kind of small, small jobs around the camps. It closes down their, sh their little shops that they run in the camps so that they can buy it from each other. It closes down the kind of small schools they set up for each other um, because you, it's changing a little bit, but they don't really have any kind of education beyond a very basic primary level. So um, there's always this fear that kind of teens are, will become a lost generation with no education. And there's put wide fences up. So there, there is, it does seem like when they want pressure to increase, they will borrow from what has been done before. You know, I, I realize that we've gone this long and we haven't actually talked about the the lives of the lives of the Rohingya refugees, many of whom are are interview subjects that kind of inform the reporting in your book. Um, you know, perhaps let's let's start with life in the camps. Um, and I guess what you mentioned, of course, that like the, the camps are, are now the world's largest, although the story doesn't start there. Um, but, but for those that actually live in, in the camps in, in, in Cox's Bazaar, um, I mean, what actually is life like for, for these refugees, especially the ones that have maybe now lived there for, for years? Yeah. Um, life has become really, I think, quite draining and I think there's a lot of despair and hopelessness at the moment. I, I don't think they can see at this point for those who have come who have now been there five years approaching six years they don't see where life is going they're just kind of frozen in this scenario this situation where they live in these massive camps but they don't know what happens beyond that Everyone would like to return to Myanmar. For them, that's their home. They can live in their villages where they were at least able to work and farm and sustain themselves. Even with like the extreme restrictions of the Myanmar military. But they don't want to return unless there are guarantees of safety and something radically changes. There, there, for some, that for many, that starts with being granted citizenship. It's not citizenship. It's not just a bit of paperwork. It's it, it's wanting citizenship and hopefully, if but once they get to the point of citizenship, that means that other things have changed and there's been a shift in kind of there's been a shift in the mentality of the state and 
other protections are in place and they're by that in this point being treated as equal citizens um but they need that guarantee of safety they need to be able to live like everyone else and not be even for the standards of like the current military regime be even kind of treated amongst the worst like I think there's a element of many of these other conflicts on the frontiers of Myanmar want this certain element of independence. The Rohingya actually want to be considered part of the nation. Mm-hmm. But so many people want to return, but they don't see this happening. They don't see any of these conditions being met soon. Mm-hmm. And so that leaves them with a real problem because what happens to them? Do they just stay in the camps forever? Um, the problem is Bangladesh has made it quite difficult. And they, the camps are not a nice place to be. They don't. Their lives are so restricted. They, they're not able to go anywhere. They're not, they, they don't have, they don't see a future for themselves in the camps. They can't get education or if somehow they kind of secretly educate themselves. So this is what some people do like. Uh, one of the characters in the book, someone who was in the camp since the 1990s, who was he was born in Myanmar, but very young went to to Bangladesh. Nobi, who I followed throughout the book, he he teaches. Uh, he has like a small little education center. He takes a very small amount of money per month from parents to kind of just to keep it going, and he he. He teaches young Rohingya what he knows, a bit of English, um, a few like core subjects, just as he was taught when he was young from people who had been able to study in Myanmar back when they were able to. And they do that. They There are people trying to keep hope alive, trying to keep make sure there isn't this lost generation. But the problem is what happens when that that education is completed and they're adults. They have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to use this education. Um, they're not really allowed to work. Um, some people might be able to find someone, find someone who will give them a bit of kind of who will employ them as a neighbor, or perhaps an NGO might take those who are have got that bit of education on as a translator. But they're always at risk of kind of being arrested for that, uh, of being arrested for having cash or for for being somewhere, if they're being somewhere outside of the camp where they're not supposed to be. As the life is extremely difficult, they completely will, they don't want to be, They but they are reliant on their age response. They, they have to wait and see what food they're given. And that depends on whether the donor community is giving enough money to the Rohingya or has, it, has its attention been distracted uh, and his engagement diverted to elsewhere or perhaps in domestically they just don't want to give as much money anymore and so which is what's happened now there's not enough money given to the ring response um, and so their food rations have been cut and there's a threat that they'll be cut again this month and so it's really all of this just needs this despair and this this concern about what happens in the future. And I think 
that will lead to desperation, it already is starting to um, use the kind of real big way this has manifested in the past and I think it's starting to now again is through smuggling of Rohingya to to other places um right and, and this leads to my to my next question because you know obviously there are those Rohingya that that don't stay in the camps but then they run afoul of these human trafficking networks yeah and so what happens is this despair is taken advantage of by the human traffickers what they offer is a route to somewhere else where they will tell them they have they will have more opportunity there will be less police they will be able to work and just live a little bit normally perhaps use education or pursue education um but it becomes a lot more than than just taking them to another place because these are human traffickers not not just they're not just smuggling them from one place to another um there's in the past people have gone to india and malaysia and um, some people still go to india but not sorry india malaysia and saudi arabia um but the saudi arabian route i think is pretty much closed um and that was that was a kind of exception the the, the king at the time actually welcomed the rohingya but then the current the current um king or his son the, the crown Mohammed bin Salman policies against migrants have, have meant Rohingya have, get, have been rounded up and kind of put in detention centers among uh, alongside others um and in India in India there's currently a lot of kind of it's very difficult with the BJP and like far-right national Hindu nationalism and the Rohingya despite being very small in numbers are quite often highlighted in Indian media as some kind of threat. And so Malaysia is has for a long time now been the main destination. It it's the idea that almost all of the regions countries in the area, its its governments have been the most sympathetic to Rohingya, the most likely to speak out and criticize Myanmar. And it there was this idea that they would be treated kind of more kindly and have a bit more freedom than camps. They won't live in camps as they do in Bangladesh. And as more as Rohingya started to go there and settle there, it became the destination. And so the traffic was set up um in the kind of two thousands, two thousand tens, they set up this route to Malaysia by boat. So Rohingya either in Bangladesh or in Myanmar would get on small boats, be taken to a big boat waiting in the Bay of Bengal, and that boat will go to Thailand. And they would be taken to the jungles of Thailand. And they were, but instead of being taken to Malaysia, in the kind of jungles in southern Thailand, they would be held there, and the traffickers would demand ransoms from their families. And only once they paid, and it could be thousands of dollars, um, they would have to sell 
land in Myanmar or somehow or take on debt to, to pay these costs. Only then would their their relative be be transported into Malaysia. But a lot of people died on this trip. Thousands probably. Um they died they died uh on boats through illness, through violence. They died in the jungle camps through again illness and violence and hunger. And what happened is in twenty fifteen Thailand discovered mass graves in those camps. And that set off a big a big kind of crisis. Thailand decided it was going to clamp down on camps, which it had ignored in the past. Its own generals were involved in the trafficking. And then um and then the kind of traffickers went into they they kind of went crazy and panicked and they abandoned ships at sea. Um, they just let, left Rohingya floating there. But all this meant in 2015, there was a focus on them and they, the trafficking routes were not shut down, but they went dormant. They, there was too much scrutiny and they stopped. They stopped operating as they were. But because of 2017 and the amount of Rohingya who went to Bangladesh, basically the majority of the population, they, the conditions, the despair in the camps now is starting to fuel a rise again in, in those traveling, trying to travel to Malaysia. And you saw, you're still seeing boats arriving in Malaysia, or sometimes they arrive in Indonesia because Malaysia, because that's where the traffickers decide to drop them off or because they can't access Malaysia because Malaysia isn't allowing, um, because they can't get most of Malaysian Navy or full. For whatever reason, but their main goal is to get to Malaysia, and so yeah, this is this is the current situation. This is it, the conditions in the camp are fueling trafficking again, but it's again a dangerous situation. There, there have been boats that have capsized and killed almost everyone on board. There and Malaysia itself has become much more hostile to the Rohingya than it was before. That it, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been increasing online hatred of Rohingya, um, even to the extent that I think last week or a week before, there was a village that kind of put up signs saying, we don't want the Rohingya here, and the families were kicked out. So um, this is kind of the situation they're in where there's not really anywhere that's safe for them, and there's no way for them to get to anywhere safe. and. The places they can get to are increasingly hostile. Um, you know, I I I want to pivot back to talking about um about the camps and and the Myanmar Bangladesh border. I mean, you you talk about some of the some of the drug smuggling that happens across that border and how mm. that takes advantage of. Well, both takes advantage of the Rohingya. The Rohingya are themselves kind of victim of a lot of perceptions about drug smuggling. Um, there's also gangs and, and gang violence between um, various different groups. Um, and I wonder if you might have talk about uh, calling it calling it organized. Well, calling it crime feels a bit both pejorative and simplistic. 
um, but kind of some of these, you know, trans-border dynamics that are happening and how they are um, affecting the Rohingya population. Yeah. So I think the first time, first time I kind of came across the idea of the drug smuggling was in 2015 uh, when I met Nobby and he was telling me about some of his neighbors, some girls who had been arrested um, because they had been carrying this drug called the Yabba um, from the border with Myanmar into Bangladesh. And it really, it was a part of what opened my eyes to this idea that I tried to explore in the book, which is that the Rohingya are exploited basically everywhere they are. And if you look at Bangladeshi media, you will see quite often this idea of the Rohingya as a problem, as a problem, as a key, as kind of facilitating and almost being responsible for the presence of this drug, Yaba, which is a methamphetamine, which is produced in Myanmar. So for the presence of Yaba in Bangladesh. But in reality, they're not the ones who are organizing this smuggling of the drugs. They are just used as a cog. They, they're, they're used to take away the risk from people on either side who want to transport these drugs. And my kind of people, kind of criminals, organized gangs on the Bangladeshi side will approach Rohingya who need some money and say, you can make this, you should go here, pick up these drugs and bring them to Bangladesh and bring them to like the towns where we need to transport them. And that's basically how it works, but it can be even an even smaller role than this. So the roads, which runs parallel to Myanmar and also to the camps, which is called Tekunaf Road. All along it, there are checkpoints. If you take a bus, it will constantly be stopped by police who will search people's bags for drugs. Um, and sometimes I met a woman, we, not her real name, we called her Fatima in the book. She, she'd ended up in debt because her husband had gone to Malaysia um, and had borrowed money to go to Malaysia, but actually when he got there, he had abandoned her and left her with the debt to pay back. And so when a local shopkeeper realized that she was in debt, offered to give her some money. But the role she played was just from around the area of his shop, which is outside the Kutubolong refugee camp, to Cox's Bazaar, which is like maybe an hour and a half away. He would give her the drugs there and she would sit on the bus or in a kind of tuk-tuk and she hold the drugs in the bag and then he would just pick them up from her at the end when he, she got to Cox's Bazaar. So she wasn't transporting them across borders. She wasn't picking them up from anyone. He would give them to her. He would hold them for the period where the checkpoints were the most frequent and then he would take them off her. and. It, she was purely just taking away the risk from him. And so that's how it works. And 
it, I think it's really quite, it really illustrates how exploited the Rohingya are. And they're treated as, you, you see Rohingya being killed by the military, but also by Bangladeshi police often. And that they were saying they've done this raid to bust like a Yabba ring. You'll see really often them saying they've arrested the Rohingya with this many tablets. But really they're just playing a role in this wider network um, which takes the drugs from from where they're manufactured in Myanmar through to Bangladesh, into Bangladesh and either to like the ports or to to like the capital where they're quite they're used by students for example. You know, I wanna I wanna kind of end our conversation by by taking taking this to the to the present day. Um you know, I think you you mentioned briefly the the COVID pandemic um at the end of your book. Uh obviously there's also been the coup in Myanmar um, in 2021 that for sure has changed the situation in Myanmar. Um, and so I guess my question is kind of, where do you think the, the Rohingya crisis, um, goes from here? Uh, you mentioned that, that there's energy building again, I think for, for, um, maybe repatriation again, but kind of like, how does, how does this crisis develop given the, given what's happened in the past two, three years? And it's really difficult to say it's going yeah. anywhere. There, there is momentum now for repatriation, but that momentum comes pretty much entirely from Bangladesh and Myanmar. And we have to remember Myanmar has in the past, over the past five years, there have been occasions where it has agreed to take back Rohingya and nothing has happened. I think the idea that the current military rulers will do anything more than was done in the past is quite hard to believe and I don't think the ring uh, the coup really made there, there was not much belief and not much sign of conditions being improved prior to the coup I think people believe have much less belief that conditions will improve now um, the situation in Rakhine has also been complicated by aside from the coup there was um, prior to it there was fighting between the Arakan army, which is a, uh, a kind of separatist group of, uh, people from the Rakhine ethnicity. So they also live in Rakhine state. They're not the same as the rest of Myanmar, but they're also, they're not Rohingya. And they, the Rohingya have often been caught in crossfire. Um, they've been killed by kind of bombards. It's by the bombardments by the military and even that has, is that's have continued since the coup on on occasions so it doesn't feel safe for them and i don't know anyone who feels like it's safe for them to return so that really does i mean there is a big question of what happens now because there isn't much prospect of return that's why i think you're seeing people getting on boats again the question is, what does the rest of the world do? Um, so far, it's kind of, it came in and gave some aid in the first year, and that aid has reduced every single year afterwards, and it has done very little politically. Um, the court, the, the international courts have not really progressed anything. 
is the International Court of Justice case, which was brought by the Gambia, which was still waiting on waiting to complete, which focuses Myanmar of genocide. And then there's the investigation by the international by the ICC, um which still has not been kind of has not booked up. That one would be on forced deportation. And that still has not progressed. It's not there's there's been there have been no hearings. So where do we go? It, it's really hard to sell it to say and it's quite frustrating because you'd like to say that there's something happening but really I think what's happening is the world has kind of left the Rohingya there and it doesn't feel much it doesn't feel compelled to do anything for them perhaps because geopolitically they're not affecting many of the countries that have any kind of influence and they didn't like it, it's really consideration of what happened before 2017 as well i mean there there are members of obama's administration who said we knew there was violence potential for real violence but because because of the kind of transition in myanmar and Aung San Suu Kyi coming into the government and then wanting to make sure all of that worked out, they kind of turned a blind eye um, and hoped it wouldn't happen, but it did. The massacres in 2017 did happen. Um, people were burned out of their houses and killed in their thousands. And now nothing is happening again. And I think what that will lead to is just people stuck in the refugee camps and forced into desperate, into making choices out of desperation, which I think the most obvious example would probably be the boat journeys. Um, but there are so many ways that they've been exploited in the past, apart from the boat journeys, the drug trafficking, um, there have been kidnappings of girls to take them for sex trafficking. It, it's just, there's really it's really quite a dark situation and I don't think it's considered enough how I think, I think it really shows I think the, the situation they've been left in really shows what happens when you have this kind of international system that just doesn't really care enough so I think that's a good place to end our conversation with Camille on I feel no peace. Uh, I feel no peace for Hingya fleeing overseas and rivers. Camille, I actually have two final questions for you, which are: uh, Where can people find your work, and what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Okay. Um, well, you can find that. I think quite a lot of online retailers are are selling the book now in in the UK and EU. You can get it online or in, in bookshops, especially in the UK. Um, if you, if they don't have it, you can ask them and they will order it for you. Um, in the U S it will be released in May. So you can pre-order already. And there are certain bookshops in, in Asia who, who are selling, selling the books, some in India, some in Singapore. Um, so. Yeah, I think unfortunately you might have to get it online. There's a the readership is 
but this book is broad and spread across many continents, so many people might have to get it online. And the ebook is available. But yeah, um, what's next? Uh, difficult kind of thinking about when I have to do another book and what that will be. I, I'm for now. I'm kind of taking a bit of a break. I, I might be looking into something about migrant laborers and the history of of migrant labor in Asia, possibly particularly but specifically Bangladesh. Um but yeah, um that's my plan and fun but otherwise I kind of taking a break it took me more than five years to write this book. So focusing just on my kind of everyday reporting. I, I work for the Guardian on the Global Development Desk, so there's there's quite a lot going on these days with with everything in the world. I'm sure. I'm sure. As someone whose day job is also in uh, media and reporting, <laughs> I understand. Um, well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. The Interview Books Podcast is on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends, support us interviewing those writing in around and about Asia. Stay tuned for more news and who's coming up on the show. But before then, thank you so much, Camille, for joining me today. Thank you, Nick.